What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Hopefully very well. Thank you so much for being here for this episode. It is a really good one. I know I say that all the time, but this is also an extra important one because my guest today, David Posis, is a writer, activist, and speaker, and he has a very important message about drugs, something we've talked about on this podcast before. And his message is to distill it down, uh, basically, you know, the entire system that we have created to deal with drugs from prevention to treatment to policy is whack. It's out of line in terms of actually helping people and reducing harm, reducing death, reducing suffering. He, his message, he brings us this message through his upcoming book called The Weight of Air, which will be available July 6th. You can pre-order it now anywhere you get books, where he recounts his story of living for decades, a double life, addicted to heroin, struggling with mental illness, depression, and coming to grips with that, coming to terms with that as a father, as a husband, as a person. He now tell, is writing in places such as uh, the LA Times, Washington Post, Undark Magazine, doing podcasts like this one uh, to promote this book and promote this message um, that is, you know, again, based on, you couldn't base it on, you know, uh, a, a better uh, story. He's lived it. He's He's been there. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation. Um powerful, powerful book. I got a chance to get an advanced copy of it. And um, yes, really, really important. Uh, he talks about how our policy basically and in our, in our, our attitudes and our treatment of addiction um, is basically to shame addicts and, you know, try and shame them out of these behaviors when really the root cause of a lot of these behaviors is mental illness. It's trying to numb pain. So, if we, you know, have a more compassionate, empathetic view of addiction, uh, of mental illness, we might be able to actually change our policy to to actually help people. So I want to thank David again for, for coming on the show. Um, I really, really enjoyed speaking to him. He's a great, uh, great speaker. He puts things in terms that are, are very clear and very powerful when you hear them. Uh, and he's a great writer. I'm really enjoying his book. Um, so you can find out more about David uh, and his book, The Weight of Air, at davidposes.com. That's P-O-S-E-S. He's on Twitter, at David the Kick. Instagram, at David underscore the Kick. And davidposes.author on Facebook. You can get links to all of the social media channels directly from davidposes.com. And yeah, uh, do give him a follow, check out what he's doing, uh, check out The Weight of Air when it becomes available. You can pre-order it. Uh, I can, again, vouch for it. It's definitely worth the read. And um, hopefully David comes back. Maybe we'll have him back uh, in the future as the book release gets closer and we can talk more about this because, yeah, really, we had a limited amount of time and there's still so many different issues uh, that we could um, that we could discuss. So this conversation was a really great overview of his story, his message, um, but it's really just the beginning, hopefully, of the conversation. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. As always, follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram, at 2 brad for you You can send us an email. Let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you want to hear about. Let us know how you felt about what you heard. 
too bad for you at gmail.com and you can leave us a voice message which we will listen to and play on the show speakpipe.com slash too brad for you all of this is also available on our website too brad for you.wordpress.com please rate subscribe follow wherever you're getting your podcast does help us get visibility does help more ears come to the show and for a message like this one delivered by david poses the more ears the better so that's it for me right now please enjoy my conversation with author speaker activist david poses David, thank you so much for for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate, um, yeah, you joining us for this for this episode. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. Uh, you're in New York, correct? I'm in New York. Yeah. Just real quick before we get started, how is it there? How are things there? It's, New York was one of the places that I hear different things about how they're handling with the pandemic. Is it good? Is it bad? Are people how are people doing? What's the mood? Yeah, I mean, it, it see, I, people are definitely sick of it. Um, it seems to be getting better, um, I think. I don't really leave my house all that much uh, since the pandemic started. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, yeah. It's outside today. <clears throat> um, yeah. Well, and I see you got all the guitars and stuff back there. So you got stuff to keep you busy. So that's good. <laughs> if only I knew how to play them, that would really be something. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Again, yeah, thanks for, for, for coming on the show and, and for sharing your story. And it, it really is an, an amazing story, a difficult story, I'm sure, to, to tell uh, and relive. Um, but one of the, the messages I think that it highlights, and this is kind of where I'd like to start, um, is that there's, there seems to be, to me, uh, a shift that's kind of happening in attitudes toward addiction, where we're kind of starting to realize that addiction is really kind of a symptom of another problem. Usually, in a lot of cases, you know, it's mental illness, depression, things like that. And when we view it that way, maybe that changes how we view addiction and how we view treatment and stuff like that. We can get into all that, but maybe you can just sort of give us the condensed version of your history to the to this point, and and you know, kind of highlighting that that sort of message that I think your your story lets us know about. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, um, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I, I mean, I, I struggled with depression since early childhood um, before I even, you know, depression, the word entered my, uh, you know, vocabulary. Um, I, I knew something was terribly wrong. I mean, my mom used to ask, um, you know, why are you so sad? Don't you want to be happy? Um, and I, I, you know, I knew I didn't want to be sad. I didn't know how not to be sad. I didn't know how to talk about it. Um, I was just, you know, full of shame. Um, my parents uh, got divorced when I was um, three or four. Mom started taking me to, to therapy. I was too ashamed of depression to even talk about my uh, you know, bad feelings. Um, my therapist figured it out anyway. They prescribed antidepressants. Um, I mean, to make a long story short, by the time I was 16, I had tried every you know, antidepressant that you could try. Nothing um, lifted the depression. Some of them made things worse or, or brought on you know, new symptoms that um, you know, they, they were all deal breakers. Um, I tried, uh, alcohol, you know, and, and pot when my friends, uh, you know, started experimenting with that stuff and I, I couldn't stand the feeling of being, um, fucked up, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I just didn't like it. I, I, I totally didn't get the appeal, but, um, in fifth grade, uh, this cop came to my school for a drug prevention assembly and he, he explained all of the substances and why you shouldn't use them. Um, 
you know, you can't drive a car if you drink alcohol, uh, pot makes you stupid, cocaine makes you angry, you know, and, and, and everything sounded like I don't want anything to do with that. And when he got to heroin, he said it was the worst drug. Um, it was originally a painkiller and it makes you not have any feelings. Um, you know, and of course he said that like it was a bad thing. And I heard this is the solution to my problems. So um, as I got older and, um, you know, my friends were, were uh, you know, using the, the gateway drugs, um, heroin in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from New York, but um, in, in the suburbs, like uh, half an hour or so outside of the city and you couldn't find heroin anywhere. And I really, you know, looked for it. Um, I, I finally tracked it down when I was 16. And, um, you know, back then uh, there wasn't, you know, an opioid crisis. We're talking about the 90s. Um, so heroin was this like hardcore drug off to the side of, of everything else. I didn't realize that, um, you know, opioid is a, is a category of drugs. So like um, heroin is to Vicodin as beer is to, you know, whiskey. So, you know, um, uh, so it, it, it didn't give me that, um, you know, I mean, I got drunk once in my life and, and I hated it. Um, with heroin, it was just relief. I mean, it, it was a painkiller. My feelings were okay. Like everything was okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I certainly knew that it was dangerous and, um, you know, illegal and immoral and, you know, all that kind of business, but it was the only thing that made me feel good. So, um, you know, I, I went and pursued it, um, as much as I could. And, you know, I mean, when, when you're talking about the, how we view addiction, I, um, I, I, it's definitely a symptom, um, you know, for me of, of depression, no question. I think that's the case for everybody else. I mean, you know, if each type of substance has a different effect on us, we use them for a different reasons. So, you know, painkillers kill pain. Um, and that's how opioids work. I mean, they target your opiate receptors, like it, it couldn't be clearer, but in our, um, you know, kind of preconceived notions about addiction and drugs, we have this idea that like, um, you know, well, if you're using drugs, like drugs are causing your pain and we blame everything on drugs. And so it's kind of this inverse model of what it actually is. Like if, if, um, you know, you were prescribed, uh, heroin, morphine, whatever for, uh, you know, after knee surgery, nobody in their right mind would be like, oh, well, clearly the, the morphine is causing your knee problems. If you stop taking yeah. it, the only way you're going to feel better, like, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, but I, I hated all of the, um, you know, the lying and the breaking the law and yeah, I mean, everything that goes along with, um, you know, illegal drugs, the, the danger, um, you know, the risks. And so after a couple of years, um, I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. And I wanted to feel okay. I told my parents, they sent me to a rehab, um, like, you know, one of the, one of the best rehabs in the country. Um, <clears throat> and when I got there, they, they did all of the AA, you know, business with me, you know, the disease and all this stuff. And, and, you know, it just, none of it made any sense. Um, and when you look at addiction, the medical issue, right? Like it's, it's very clear your body is, you know, addicted to this thing, right? So the idea that sobriety is the, is the antidote to addiction, um, you know, for a while I railed against that, but what I've come to realize is that's actually true. You stop taking drugs. Um, you are sober, your addiction is over, right? Mm -hmm. Sobriety is not the cure for compulsive drug use. That's the actual problem. And so we're trying to cure a compulsive behavior with sobriety, which is not the answer. You know, again, you have your knee surgery, you take the, uh, you know, the morphine, you're addicted to morphine. Um, sobriety is not going to solve your knee problem. It's going to mm -hmm. solve your addiction to the morphine, right? So, um, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, some archaic version of this thought, uh, you know, at 19 in rehab. And 
you know, I'm a, I'm a teenager. I just, you know, lied to everybody in my life for three years. And you've got these experts uh, who have absolutely no medical qualifications who are preaching this program that is, you know, really um, not all that dissimilar to how we looked at bubonic plague in the you know middle ages of like, well, you just pray. And if God wants you to live, then you're in business. Um, you know, and, um, and, and I, I, you know, I knew that it sounded a lot like quack medicine. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, if it works for you, that's great. I never want to discourage anybody from anything that works. Um, but it, 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 it just, it was offensive to me. Um, you know, but, um, for my mom who, uh, is being told by these experts, um, you know, he's lying. This is how it works. This is his addiction talking. You know, you got to get the hand sanitizer out of the house. He's going to drink it if he gets desperate enough for a high, you know, and, and I'm explaining this to my mom and she's like, everything you're saying is making perfect sense, but what if you're wrong? You know? And it's like, I mean, I have two kids now. If anybody told me that, you know, my, my kids were going to die, like, of course I'm going to listen to them. So I, you know, I, I get it. Um, so I, I got kicked out of rehab for making out with this girl. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And they sent me to, um, you know, this tough love ultimatum uh, to a halfway house. Um, and to make a long story short, um, you know, I, I knew that I was going to relapse. I mean, the depression wasn't cured. They told me in rehab, depression's an excuse. Um, addiction is your problem. You're an addict. You know, all this stuff that, that was just crazy. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, um, I, 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 I couldn't live with this feeling. Like I, I wanted to die. I mean, I was, I was, you know, suicidal and, um, and I didn't have a choice. Uh, it, I, I, I couldn't function feeling the way that I was feeling. It was, it was just an untenable situation. Um, so, you know, it was like holding my breath. I mean, I, I went as long as I could without it because I didn't want to hurt anybody and, and be an addict and all that kind of business. Um, you know, but back to the knee, knee surgery, it's like, you know, in a flare up, what are you going to do? You're going to call your doctor and say, Hey, look, I think, you know, this is a problem and whatever. And, um, you know, so, um, so I went out and, and, and spent, you know, uh, a dozen years relapsing, um, you know, from relapse to relapse. And when, when I was on, um, heroin, uh, you know, I was able to function. Everything was fine. I built a successful career. I got married, you know, life was great. Um, when I was sober, um, I lost jobs. I couldn't, you know, function. It, it, it was, it was brutal. Um, and then, uh, I found buprenorphine when I was 32. Um, I had actually known about it since before I tried heroin, uh, in the early nineties, it was, um, there were clinical trials for buprenorphine in New York. My best friend who, who gave me, uh, heroin the first time, um, was one of the first, uh, clinical trial, um, people and some of his friends were as well. So, but I, I, thought that it was um, for withdrawal, like that it eases the withdrawal symptoms. I didn't realize it was a maintenance drug. Um, so, um, so I got on, I got on buprenorphine at, at 32 and, um, you know, I still, um, I mean, this whole time I led everybody in my life to believe that, uh, you know, I, I stopped using it at 18 before rehab and never looked back. Um, you know, so as far as the book goes, you know, to put that in context, it means that, nobody in my life was aware of anything that happened from the first page of the book. Um, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's like, you know, a couple of sentences and then it's all, you know, brand new information. Um, you know, my, I, I hadn't told my wife, I, I didn't tell anybody. And then as the opioid crisis started to, um, you know, get more uh, attention in the news and, you know, all the Oxycontin stuff was going on. I mean, I saw this coming from a mile away. Depression rates are skyrocketing. 
Um, you know, everybody's miserable. Everybody's anxious. Everybody has trauma. Antidepressants work for, you know, roughly 50% of people who use them. We're talking about painkillers. People are in pain. They're going to take them, you know? Um, and so I just, I saw this misinformation in the world and, and I was so ashamed and so miserable. And I realized that, um, you know, I'm like actively sabotaging every change that I want to see in the world by pretending that this didn't happen. Um, and my wife and I were together for 18 years. We had two young kids. Um, and it just, it reached a point where I, I lost so many friends to overdose. And I thought like, I have to say something. Um, I couldn't keep my mouth shut anymore. And um, I mean, I, I was very lucky that she was as compassionate and understanding as she was, um, you know, and, and I certainly, you know, know her very well and, and, and love her and, and know that that's all true. But I fully expected that she was going to be like, get the fuck out of here. I never want to see you again. You've betrayed me like as if mm -hmm. I didn't care. Um, and so, you know, her, her understanding and acceptance, um, made it easier to open up to other people. Um, I had written the book before I told her, I mean, basically the idea was I've always, you know, had some kind of writing project going on. So it was like, you know, I'm just going to give it to her and be like, here it is, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, as I started opening up and, and, and was well received, the, the book turned into a, you know, maybe I should do something with this. Um, so it was kind of just, you know, parallel tracks. Um, and here we are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it, it makes sense to me, uh, when you explain it in these terms, you know, and I, and like I said, kind of off the top, it, I feel like there is a shift in the attitudes in, in people kind of coming around to this idea that it's not this sort of, um, yeah, that the drug is just like, you know, you take this drug once and you're going to become an addict and then it goes on. You know, do you do you feel like that, that that shift is happening as well? Because, I mean, I'm coming at it from like very little experience. I know I have a few people in my life that, you know, deal with mental illness, depression kind of thing. Uh, they they appear to be doing okay i've never really dealt with uh, addiction or anything like that so as sort of an outsider coming at it like how do you feel the conversation is changing do you feel like there's progress being made I, in that area I do. I'm, I'm actually um I'm, I'm stunned um and you know for i think what i'm noticing is um when i talk to people and explain it um I mean, my views and experience, like I'm not some unique individual here. I mean, you know, this is the norm, um, mm -hmm. the, the junkie stereotype. It, it's just, you know, it's bullshit. Um, and so I really expected to get a lot of pushback and a lot of like, you know, well, that can't really be true. Or, you know, is it really like this? Or even just a little bit of, you know, something I, I, of course I've had people, you know, send me Twitter messages or whatever and say, you know, you're a crazy asshole and I hope you die. Um, you know, but anybody that I've interacted with, um, like a hundred percent of people, um, are, you know, get it. Uh, mm -hmm. even if they, even if they went into the conversation feeling the exact opposite, um, you know, they, they get it. And it seems like the sentiment out in the world, um, more people realize that it's not bad people go out and decide to do drugs because you can break the law every day. Um, I mean, when you really look at it, there's just no logic in, um, you know, society's notion of, of what this really is. Like when, when you, when you think about what it is, like it makes more sense that a painkiller 
that has been in use longer than written language, <laughs> that only has one use to kill pain, is being used by people who are hurting. Like that makes more sense than like crazy assholes go out and use this stuff because they're just, you know, want to hurt people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the idea that, um, you know, like we know that, um, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and starts guzzling booze all day and, and functions like we know that um, there's millions of people all over the world that are prescribed all kinds of opioids. And we, you know, we, we not only know that they can function on them, we know that they need these drugs specifically to function. So we don't question that. You know, you, you have your knee surgery, you're taking your morphine, you know, thank God you have it, you wouldn't be able to get out of bed otherwise. You know, but then we meet somebody on heroin and we're like, how the hell do you do that? You know, well, it doesn't really add up. If you know that people can take morphine for the knee pain, then you know that people can take heroin for the, you know, the, the head pain. Um, and it's the same with, with all of the, you know, I mean, I, I've been very, um, talking about legalization out in the world, you know, I think like we have this idea that, that you know, al of course, alcohol is safe, it's legal, you know, why, why would it be, you know, otherwise? Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, the, the science behind it is very clear. It's the, you know, it's the most dangerous thing you can put in your body. It's more addictive. You know, you can die in withdrawal with, with alcohol. Alcohol is made less dangerous because it is legal. Like that's the difference. And so people are dying of heroin overdoses because, you know, you, you have no idea what's in this bag of dope. And so if one bag is 10 times stronger than the one before it, like you're dead. Um, if you pour, uh, you know, you, you, you're drinking beer. I know I can drink a beer. No problem. I'm not going to get sick. And then there's grain alcohol in your beer. Like you're done. Um, you know, you're, you're just dead, mm -hmm. but that's not going to happen. Um, and so it's like, you know, this idea of like, oh, well, drugs are dangerous and they're, you know, that's why they're illegal and they're going to kill you. And, 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 legalization leads to widespread use. Like, I mean, you know, I can, there's booze all over the place. Like you can go to the supermarket, the gas station, everywhere you go, like the whole world doesn't load up on beer every time they're out of their house because it's legal. So like we disprove all of our, um, you know, preconceived ideas that, you know, these, these axioms that, you know, they have to be true. Like, and, and we're, we're out in the world living, um, you know, debunking them every day. And then when you actually point it out to somebody, they're like, holy shit, you're absolutely right. I, I don't buy beer everywhere I go. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't become a, you know, a, a meth user if meth was legal, um, you know, whatever. And, and it, I think it's really just um, people are more open minded. And it's really just it, it's the way that you explain it, like the old argument of like, you know, pot should be legal. It's not bad for you. And I, I shouldn't get arrested for buying weed like, you know. When you put it that way, there's people who, well, I, I don't like pot, and so it shouldn't be legal, and I don't really care. But when you say, look, the leading cause of death in the United States right now is accidental overdose. Overdose is a matter of potency. It's it's not, I, I took too much of this stuff. It's It was too strong, right? So if you don't know how strong it is, you're, you can't prevent overdose. Like, you just can't. It's, you know, the bottle of, uh, of grain alcohol again. You don't know what's in the bottle, like, you're fucked. Um, and that's why people are dying. It's it's not about carelessness. It's not about, um, you know, you didn't measure it properly. You, there's no unit of measure. Um, and so that's why people are dying. And if we wanted to save lives, like, you know, I mean, during Prohibition, people were dying from alcohol overdose left and right. Um, it's a, it's not just the unregulated market. It's, it's the grain alcohol in the bottle thing all over again. And so it's really, it's the humane thing. And this idea that like drug use is immoral, drug users are bad people, all that kind of business. Like, so you're saying, Drug users deserve to die because that's the moral thing to do. Like these arguments, um, they invalidate themselves. And, uh, you know, people are smart and, and you, know, you just have to listen to it for a minute and, and, and you know that it's 
insane what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's it's amazing because it is like even, you know, um, I was in high school in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, and there was still that message, you know, of it's the substances problem. You know, we demonize certain substances, but we yet we allow other ones, you know, like, you know, alcohol, like you mentioned, is ubiquitous everywhere. And it's like a rite of passage, right, in our culture when you turn 18. I'm living here now in Germany. I'm originally from Canada. I'm, I'm here in Germany. Alcohol is, you know, it's everywhere. And kids, you know, are introduced to it at a younger age here. Like, it's not as taboo, right? So you see this different relationship with it, right? So they think that, you know, that the idea, like you, you pointed out, that, yeah, we're changing, we're, we're changing the view of, like, bad substance, good substance, rather to just like all substances, harmful use, you know, controlled use, this kind of thing, right? But then I also think that there's there's been a recent, and maybe you could speak to this as well, because, you know, this is what we're talking about as the root of this addiction thing is mental illness. I think there has been a, a changing in conversation around mental illness as well. And again, thankfully, I haven't had to deal with this you know, very, very uh, deeply in my life, but it feels like there's a, a bigger recognition that it's not just, oh, you're sad, you know, get over it kind of thing. But it's it's still, I think it's still a slippery thing for for a lot of people to understand because it isn't like the, you know, the, the wound that you can just, you can watch it heal, you can, you know, feel better and that kind of thing. And there's, I, I know there's a lot of people that when you're dealing with someone who either you have mental illness or someone in your life has mental illness, it doesn't make sense. The behaviors don't make sense. You see someone, you know, maybe be destructive with a, with trying to self-medicate and stuff like that. And it's this, you know, like what, how do we, how do, how do you kind of reconcile that? Or how do you speak to people about that? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I, it, it, it made sense to me the first time when, um, my psychiatrist explained it as a distortion. So I see the world as, you know, everybody hates me and I'm a terrible person and I can't do anything right. And, you know, you're going to find out in five minutes, and, you know, whatever. Um, that's my distorted view. Right. <clears throat> um, and so when you, when you're able to kind of step outside of that lens and go like, okay, maybe, maybe, you know, everybody uh, doesn't see me as this terrible person. Maybe I'm not. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe there's some worthwhile, you know, redeeming virtue, um, you know, that that's very helpful. But the the kind of, you know, the, the bad thoughts, um, you know, for lack of a better word, it's like, um, you know, I mean, we we know that you can't will, um, you know, physical, uh, you know, pain away, right? Like, um, you know, your knee surgery will just snap out of it and I'll be fine, uh, you know. Um, but with 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 emotional um you know, uh, maladies, um, it, you know, you should be able to snap out of it. I should be able to be okay. I, you know, I have so much to be happy for. Why am I so miserable? Um, you know, so we kind of pile on that guilt and yes, I, I think it is, um, it's shifting, but it's still very hard to understand from the outside because it doesn't even make sense from the inside. So, you know, I, I don't know how to, you know, reconcile that, I guess. Um, but I, I, I think there is more, um, you know, of, of at least an awareness that it's not what I think it is, or they can't control it. I mean, you know, who's going to choose to be miserable if you don't have to be like, I mean, come on, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just that it's, it's that logic again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and, and I think also, 
some of um, that is is reinforced by the things that um, people who are struggling say and do. And I'm certainly not, you know, blaming anyone, um, you know, or myself. But I know that, you know, for years, by pretending that I I wasn't depressed, um, you know, I'm reinforcing the idea that it's something to be ashamed of and I shouldn't be and, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I'm obviously not going to walk out of my house in my bathroom and start complaining about, you know, everything. But um, and and it's similar with drugs. Like, you know, what I said to you before about the way heroin made me feel. I couldn't say that out loud until, you know, a couple of years ago. I, I would I would tell people if, you know, if anybody knew about, um, you know, my, my, my past, um, you know, it's pure evil and it's terrible and, you know, all this stuff. By doing that, I'm, I'm invalidating the reason that I used it, right? If it's pure evil, then, then it did nothing for me. And, you know, why, why did I use it? So that idea of like, um, you know, uh, you've got to stop and it's going to kill you and it's terrible and all that kind of stuff. Nobody ever says, why are you using this stuff? What's it doing for you? What are you trying to, you know, pave over, feel better? Like what's actually going on here? Because in the absence of that, then it's very easy to go, well, you got to just stop. This is terrible. It's not doing anything for you. Look at all this pain. You're killing your family and yourself and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So like that was kind of the, the one thing that like, um, I mean, it's not necessarily reconciling it, but to, I, I wish that question was asked more, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it, it seems obvious when we, when we talk about it and I love the way that you put it, that we sort of, we're, we're debunking all of these things every day with our, with our behaviors and things like that. Um, so how, how did you then, you know, come to deal with, with the depression? Because like you said, like, you, um, antidepressants work for like 50% of people, and there's this is like a whole other area of of you know science study this like brain chemistry and psychiatry and I recently just did a um, a podcast for uh, Undark magazine looking at the you know the new psychedelic movement for for treatment and uh, of depression and things like that and one of the things that struck me again as someone that was not in this world until you know taking an interest and taking a look at it through this lens was that, you know, we think of, you know, drugs and clinical trials, oh, you can just take a drug and be better, you know, like with pain and stuff like this. But therapy doesn't work that way. There's not even really a great way for science to sort of say, well, this therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is better than, uh, you know, psychoanalysis or something like that. Like, it's such a personal thing. And there's like so many um, variables that go into it. So I'm just kind of curious as to, you know, sort of your experience, obviously it's not going to speak to everyone's experience, but I think that's an important, you know, part of this, you know, if, if not just numbing the pain with drugs, right. What? I mean, I, you know, I think, um, some, some aspects of my experience are, um, more universal in in terms of the, the buprenorphine at least, because, um, you know, I mean, if, if you look at the way that, that opioids work, right. So like you've got your opiate receptors, um, and they, uh, regulate emotional well-being and pain, right. Um, so opioids work by flooding your brain with, with dopamine and serotonin and binding to your opiate receptors. Um, and so, you know, you feel less pain, you feel less, you know, emotional, physical, same thing. They don't know or care why you're using them. That's just what they do. Um, you know, we have this idea that like, oh, you can't use them for depression. They only work for, you know, physical pain, but they work exactly the same for both. Um, so with the buprenorphine, uh, it targets your, um, you know, the, the mu receptors, which are, um, you know, more, I guess, in charge of your 
emotional well-being. And so they provide that level of saturation that you need to, um, you know, push down the emotional pain to, to kind of get past the distortion. I mean, whatever, you know, analogy and metaphor you want to use, um, it breaks that that pain down. It, it's, a, it's a warm blanket on whatever's hurting you. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be the same for physical pain. Um, you know, there's people out there that go like, well, it's the same as heroin. It's really not. I mean, you know, ask for it the next time you sprain your ankle and you'll find out. Um, but um, for those of us who are using painkillers to kill emotional pain, which, you know, I mean, I, I've read that it's somewhere around 95%. I want to say that it's closer to 100, but that's still, you know, not zero. <laughs> um, so um, so with the buprenorphine, that's what it does. Um, it's it's not as strong as, as heroin or, you know, OxyContin or any of that stuff. But if you go into it with this, um, you know, I'm just going to be sober and that's fine and that's what I need or whatever, you know, again, you're not solving the, the depression. So like the, the buprenorphine, um, uh, you know, if, if sobriety was like holding my breath, right? So buprenorphine was, um, you know, snorkel or lifeboat or, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, I couldn't get to therapy if I couldn't breathe, if I'm like drowning in the ocean and, you know, dog paddling. Um, so with the buprenorphine, I was able to get to therapy and start to unpack the emotional baggage that led to the heroin in the first place. Um, you know, depression is a degenerative biological issue. So it's not like anything I do is going to make it completely go away. It's really just managing it. Um, the buprenorphine allows me to breathe the weekly sessions with my therapist. You know, it's like, I, sometimes I feel like this is crazy and I'm going nowhere. And then, I mean, I had these like two major Eureka moments in the past few weeks that I was like, holy shit, I can't believe that, you know, um, that doesn't happen all the time. But even with that, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm me. And so I could tell you exactly what happened and you might be like, well, so what? I already knew that. Or like, you know, I don't care. Um, so, you know, everybody is different, but I think that's the other piece of this is that like, we are looking, we, we think there's some universal solution we're looking for this, you know, like do these 10 things and you'll be okay. Or, you know, this is just what works. You know, it's, that's AA's motto. It works. Um, and the fact is like nothing works like that in the world under any circumstances, everything, you know, so why would this be different? Um, and, uh, you know, but, but that's, that's really what it is. It's, it's the, um, I have more tools now to deal with the bad. I have more um, awareness of you know what's causing it and um, and you know how how to work around it, how to manage it, all that kind of stuff. I've got the the warm blanket of buprenorphine. Um, you know, I mean, I, I I went into it thinking I've been on it for 13 years, and I went into it thinking like I won't be on this forever. But you know what? Like I need this, mm-hmm. um, and, and and I was you know kind of like shamed by my doctor into weaning off a couple of years ago. And that was a huge, um, you know, mistake. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't come off entirely, but as, as I went down, it was clear that like, this is a, this is a bad move. And, you know, we, we know that like with diabetes, you wouldn't tell somebody, you know, well, when are you going to stop taking the insulin? Clearly your diabetes is under control. Like we don't, nobody would even think to ask that question. Um, but, but we, we pack so much shame into drug. You should be okay without anything why do you need this stuff? It's like, you know what, look, if you're, if you're taking painkillers for your emotional pain and, and you haven't entirely healed it because it's degenerative and biological, well then guess what? You need this stuff. Um, you know, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean again, it's, it's the, the you know, some drugs are good, some drugs are bad, or, you know, like this idea that we, uh, we, we, you have to be, you know, perfect without anything. 
right? Like that's, that's the goal, right? It's just to be, you know, substance free, I guess, and perfectly happy and all of this, this stuff. And it's, it's kind of this, like, I, you know, it's gets put on this pedestal, but in reality, nobody is that, you know, even the people that casually, you know, drink or something like, you know, like how many times do people say like, Oh, I had a tough day at work. I'm going to have a beer or I'm going to have a drink or even a cup of tea, you know, technically is, you know, some kind of a a drug. just to jump back to the buprenorphine, see, because yeah. I was, you know, I, I did a little bit of reading on it um, before coming to this podcast. And I was curious, yeah, to as to exactly how it works and what it was, because I, the, this, the, the websites I kind of found and stuff like that were, were kind of putting it in the same, you know, there was buprenorphine and there was methadone and like these other things. But it's really not like methadone like methadone is like meant to manage withdrawal correct no well methadone is a full opioid agonist so so methadone is to heroin as uh you know scotch is to bourbon okay um yeah i mean well no methadone is a synthetic opioid uh heroin is an opiate so it's 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 a naturally occurring you know non-synthetic drug but i mean you know for all intents and purposes it's 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 scotch and whiskey um or scotch and you know bourbon it's um it's it's the same thing it's a matter of potency they're spelled differently yeah. um, you know but they're, they're basically the same so so buprenorphine um is uh it, it's a partial opio it's a partial agonist um so it, it it doesn't have the like you know warm fuzzy um uh you know feelings can get through with buprenorphine i guess okay. it's really you know what it is um but it's not, it's not, I guess my question is kind of like, it is still sort of, it's, it's supplying in a way what the, what the opiate, what the heroin, for example, was, but in a sort of toned down right. version. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, any, anything, whether it's a partial agonist or, or full, um, it's saturating your receptors. So like if, if, um, you know, you've got this, you know, a football field of, of grass and it rains, they're saturated. Right. Um, if it doesn't rain, then they're dry and they're going like we need water. Um, mm-hmm. And so for people who um, start taking, uh, you know, painkillers and and feel like they can operate better on them when it rains, uh, you need that you need that water. Um, are there people who are just doing it to party or because they're bad people? You know, I mean, I don't think so, but. Okay, you know maybe maybe there are. For the rest of us, um, you know, if you're if you're if your pain if you can get past your pain um, and live comfortably, uh, you know, without the buprenorphine, hey, great, good for you. I mean, I, look, I, I wish I could wake up every day and not have to take anything. That would be awesome. Um, I can't. I know that. Um, you know, I mean, I my my vision is bad, so I wear glasses. Like, if I'm not going to be ashamed about that, then I have no reason to be ashamed about. About the buprenorphine. I mean, you know, my my um, you know, a couple of relatives and friends. You know, when are you going to stop taking that crap? Like, never. I'm just not. Um, I yeah. mean, you know. It, it, yeah. No. It, no. It makes sense. I just wanted to yeah, like understand exactly how that works for you know for the people that that if someone is listening who is struggling with something like this to know that this is an option. You know, um, and then I guess my question would be like it's not something that I had heard of until, you know, the, the, the press, uh, your press folks got in touch with me about, about your book and everything. And I was looking at that and just being like, Oh, I didn't even realize, you know, I had heard of methadone. I had heard of like kind of antidepressants, these other things. I didn't even realize that this, this was an option. 
Um, yeah. What is the sort of, um, I guess, status of it? You will, I, we'll talk about it, the American context, I guess, but like, this is something you get a prescription from your doctor. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's really, I mean, it's, it's being mismanaged um, in, in such a disgusting way right now in America. Um, so any, any, you know, um, any physician can prescribe any full opioid agonist for, you know, they can just write you a prescription to fentanyl, no problem. 7% of US doctors have um, what's called an X waiver, which is the special, uh, you know, um, thing that you need to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, so, you know, everybody can prescribe something that will kill you. 7% can prescribe something that won't, that will save you from the things that will kill you, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there's so much, um, you know, stigma involved in it that even among those who can prescribe it, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I've met more people than I can count who had a kid who was on buprenorphine, wanted to move to some sober living home. It's, you know, an AA-based rehab place is telling you, like, you got to get off that. You need to be pure and clean and you know, not on anything. Um, and, and then they wean them off and then they, you know, they, they, they die of overdose. Um, and it's, it's really very sad. So the um, Biden administration recently made a change that any physician now can prescribe buprenorphine to up to, it's either 10 or 30 people. That sounds great when you read that headline. The problem is um, my primary physician, who is a perfectly nice guy, and I've known him for a very long time. If I go in there and I go, hey, I need buprenorphine, give it to me. That doesn't mean that he wants to prescribe it, you know? And so doctors, I mean, you know, I, I hate to make generalizations, but like, you know, if you're a plastic surgeon, like, do you want all the junkies banging down your door for buprenorphine? Probably not. If you're a Doctors Without Borders guy, like, so... You know, there's a million and a half physicians in the United States right now. Of that million and a half, there's 1,183 are certified in addiction medicine. So if there's 20 million people struggling with opioid addiction, it's roughly, you know, one doctor for every 18,875. Like, it's untenable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so um, you know, and, and you can get it now with telemedicine. I mean, there's pharmacies are allowed to... Um, you know, they have discretion to not dispense whatever they feel like not to, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I like to think I'm reasonably articulate, you know, not a horrifying, you know, presenting uh, person in, in a drugstore. I've had situations where, um, you know, it's, it's a controlled substance. Um, I was traveling, I was going on a work trip. Um, I went to, this has happened, you know, dozens of times over the past 13 years, I, you know, I'm picking it up one day early, 12 hours early, you know, whatever it is. And um, I, I had a, a drugstore that threatened to call the, the DEA if I didn't, uh, you know, leave. And, and it's like, I'm taking this to avoid the bad drugs and you're not giving it to me. So what mm -hmm. do you think? Mm -hmm. um, what's the what's the, the reason behind this? Is it just the physicians just don't don't know about it? Or is there some kind of like I'm assuming like all drugs, there's side effects, but is it doesn't sound like it's an overly dangerous substance. It's, it's, it's not overly dangerous. I mean, the partial agonist, um, it's, it's self-limiting. It has a ceiling effect. Uh, you're, you're not going to die. Um, it doesn't have any long-term side effects. It doesn't have any short-term side effects. It's really just ignorance and, um, and stigma. And, you know, the other thing is it's available in only a third of rehabs, although it might be more now in treatment centers because the predominant model is, um, you know, the faith and abstinence based, which believes that anything other than, you know, Tylenol and so forth means you're not sober and invalidates your sobriety. So according to those guys, I might as well be on all kinds of drugs right now because I'm on buprenorphine. Um, I mean, I, I think I'm functioning fairly well. I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, 
some crazy fucked up intoxicated person right now. Um, you know, but that's, that's, that's how they feel. Um, so they make it, uh, I shouldn't say they make it very hard, but there's a lot of shame in asking for it, um, in getting it. And, and there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, providers who will tell you, you know, you really only should be on it for this amount of time because you don't need it. It's part of your addiction. You got to be clean and sober, you know, and all that kind of business. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's back to like, what are you doing this for in the first place? If you're, if you're taking it for emotional pain and that hasn't been healed and you take it for a week, a month, whatever, but you haven't healed the wound, what's going to happen when you stop? Like pain doesn't stop when you stop taking opioids, it gets worse. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so it's like that, that logic that's just kind of absent from the conversation. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, buy into it. I mean, I, I certainly did. I was on it for 10 years when my doctor said, you don't need this crap anymore. You've been on it for 10 years. Everything's under control. Stop, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we started weeding down. It was very clear that it was a bad, bad move, but I thought yeah. like, why, like I shouldn't have to take this stuff. Everything's okay now. You know, it wasn't. Um, and so I went back on, but there's a lot of shame in that, you know, um, mm -hmm. you want to be free of this. I shouldn't need it, you know, whatever. So, and, and, you know, I think for me, like I'm, um, I don't want to say like, I'm, you know, uh, more knowledgeable than the next guy, but like, you know, I've, I've kind of, you know, I'm so aware of the shame that's baked into it that like, you'd think if anybody was going to stand up to their doctor, like I would be the kind of person who would do that, you know? And the fact that it didn't even occur to me to do that is, like, what does that tell you about the state of affairs? Um, mm -hmm. you know, like, mm -hmm. I, I, like I'm out in the world screaming about this stuff and it didn't even occur to me to do that is like, um, you know, I mean, it, it's embarrassing, but it's also, you know, it, it shows how strong that is. I mean, I had this thought, um, you know, many, many years ago when, when I was in a, a really black hole of depression before I was on buprenorphine and I, I was, um, you know, thinking, I mean, I, I just couldn't escape the suicidal thoughts. And I thought like, if I kill myself, everybody will, not everybody, but, you know, my family would get a lot of sympathy. Oh, that's so sad. You know, whatever. If I went out and used heroin to avoid killing myself, like everybody's going to hate me. Yeah. That's, you know, the, the, the stigma of, of suicide and mental health, like that's the disparity between drug use, um, you know, and addiction and, um, and suicide. I mean, that's, that's a really sad state of affairs. I mean, again, it's you, you put it in those terms and it's like it's so shockingly obvious, you know, like that, like, why would we view it that way? Like you said, sympathy for one outcome, shame and derision for, for the other when it's the same root problem. Yeah, it's, it's insane. It, it, it's it really is. I mean, I think like, you know, the, I guess I've I've had I've, I've believed these things and felt them for, um, you know, since I was 16, I'm, I'm 45. So like I've been cultivating these views for a long time. But um you know, I didn't have the like uh, self-awareness and introspection or even the ability to, you know, let these words come out of my mouth, um, you know, until fairly recently. So, you know, and, and, and we're so subjected to these, you know, societal stigmas and stuff like I, I don't know if everybody um, I mean, I bought into the idea that I'm a bad person. I'm a junkie. This is why I'm doing this stuff. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if most people also, um, you know, experience that. But as as public perception shift, as people become more comfortable, um, or even, you know, if you say to like somebody's family, when, when they say like, you know, what do I do? It's like, well, do you want your kid to be alive and feel better? Or do you want to shame the shit out of them? So they jump off a roof. Like what's your objective here? <laughs> Nobody's going to say, I want my kid to jump off a roof, you know? So, all right. So then here are your options. Like, let's be realistic about this because this, this idea of like, just say no, and you're a bad person and all of that, like, is that helpful? Like, 
does putting somebody in jail because they're taking drugs to feel better, is that going to make them feel, oh, I clearly I don't need drugs. Like jail made me feel so spectacular. I'm never, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. And it's, it's like, I, I, I hope that attitudes are shifting. It feels like attitudes are shifting. Um, I think we got like 10, 15 minutes here, maybe. And then I got to let you go. But I want to just quickly, you know, what do you think then, you know, for treatment, how do we change the conversation around that? Like we talked about this sort of abstinence only model, this again, very black and white, you're either an addict or you're not, you're, you're taking, you're sober or you're not. How do we change that? I mean, there's a whole thing that I wish we had time to go into about like just the, the model behind that. You mentioned briefly that people don't have medical qualifications. Like this is a kind of can be a for-profit venture yeah. and it's just a weird, it's, you know, it's, system. It is insane. I mean, it's been so siloed off from the medical field. The disregard of science and evidence in addiction is um, like, like nothing else. I mean, it's truly the, the Middle Ages um, for the most part. And so, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's certainly enough studies and, you know, Jim, I mean, I'm not talking about conspiracy theories here and like my you know, crazy ass opinions, like these are facts. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, uh, abstinence-based treatment is now associated with an increased risk in um, death, overdose, relapse, study after study. It's consistent mountain of evidence, right? Um, buprenorphine and methadone are proven to dramatically reduce death, uh, relapse and overdose. And, you know, so, so they save lives. Um, they're much less accessible than the one that will kill you. So we need to change that, um, you know, clearly. And um, I mean, I think it really just starts with like recognizing the science. I mean, like, let's, let's, let's do what works. Like we know what works. Why don't we get behind that? And even with, you know, everything from prevention to treatment to policy, like, I mean, you know, we, we know that every legal substance is safer than anything illicit. I mean, you know, um, so if, if just, if you're not going to stop people from using drugs because they've been using drugs forever, um, I mean, humans, you know, um, why wouldn't we make drugs safer? Why wouldn't we offer the treatment that works to more people? You know, I mean, right now in America, you know, fentanyl, like fentanyl, the, the, the fentanyl analogs are in everything. Like you can't get, you know, cocaine anymore without being tainted with fentanyl. So, um, you know, and you can get it delivered to any address in under 24 hours. So if I can get, you know, deadly amounts of heroin delivered to, you know, anywhere, um, but there's a six month waiting list for the methadone clinic and you have to go to the clinic every day and I can get the fentadope delivered to my house, what am I going to do? I mean, you know, um, we have to, the, the antidote needs to be more like, it's just logic, make it more accessible than, you know, the poison. Um, and it really just takes, uh, if, if we didn't moralize this, these answers would be so obvious. The treatment is less accessible than the poison. Well, shit, you know, let's change that. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but, but lawmakers have to really get outside of that. I mean, you know, harm reduction is being debated in America right now. We are debating whether to reduce harm. I mean, what the fuck? Like, bike accidents might hurt your head. So we're not going to give you a helmet because bikes are dangerous. Like that's the mentality. I mean, like in, in multiple States right now, there's, um, uh, you know, legislation about, um, access to, um, Narcan needle exchange programs, safe injection sites. Nobody has ever died in a safe injection site, right? Ever, but we don't want them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we need them 
because you don't know how strong the drugs are that you're using. So like they're a necessary thing because we refuse to legalize and then we go, well, shit, we're not going to give you this other thing. So we keep pushing them down. And, and, and if, if, if it was truly anything, I mean, like we don't have a problem with gun locks. We know guns are like, when something's dangerous, we find ways to make it less dangerous with drugs. We're like, fuck that. These guys deserve to die. You know, forget it. Um, and it really just takes some lawmakers to have a backbone and get outside of the, of the moral, you know, bullshit and say, you know what? I care more about saving lives. These laws are stupid. They are. I mean, if, if our, um, if, if our drug policy had anything to do with, with health or safety, we would stick a crate of dynamite in it and start over. I mean, it, it mm-hmm. couldn't have designed a better system from prevention uh, treatment policy that is more deadly than we have right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's hopeful to see that some places are making the change, you know, places that, that, that have typically dealt with these things for a long time. I know uh, from my Canadian background, you know, the West Coast, Vancouver, they're doing things that are, they're trying to do things that are different, but, you know, it took things getting so, so bad. But then I see, you know, the next province over, my home province of Alberta, getting rid of, you know, uh, safe injection sites. Because again, this idea that, well, we don't want these, these people, we don't want them around, you know, and it's just, it's, yeah, it's, there's still some work to be done, I guess. Um, So then I'll just, we can, we can sort of wrap it up here. Uh, I wish we had more time. It's a great conversation. Um, maybe you could just, um, you know, any, any advice you want to give to, to anyone that might be, you know, dealing with this kind of thing. And then, you know, let us know about how, uh, people can follow you, uh, get the book, the weight of air, um, when it's coming out, you know, all that kind of stuff, okay. Twitter, whatever it is. Sure. Um, all right. So I'm, uh, I'm David, the kick on Twitter. Um, on Instagram, I'm David underscore the kick. Um, on Facebook, I'm David dot poses or David poses dot author. Um, everything's on my website, which is David poses.com. Um, uh, the book's coming out on July 7th or, or July 6th. Sorry. Um, pre-orders are, are on Amazon, you know, pretty much anywhere you want to buy a book, you can get it. Um, I mean, really like to kind of distill the advice, uh, down to, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, essence, uh, I think there's something to be said for the golden rule, you know, how would you want to be treated if you were in this spot? You know, you're struggling with something, you're really ashamed. Do you want somebody telling you you're a fucking asshole and you know, you don't deserve help? Would you want to get arrested? You know, would, would you want some understanding if you lied about something that you were really ashamed of and you broke the law? I mean, you know, it's like these basic questions that, that um, I think if, if, if anybody just stopped and turned around on themselves, they would go, you know what? I wouldn't want to be treated this way makes makes perfect sense to me uh thank you so much um you know I, I think it's great what you're out here doing letting people know about this i think it's it's something that like as you say there the the evidence is is irrefutable there's scientific evidence behind this stuff that we need a shift in in how we deal with this thing and how we how we view these things so i'm hopeful that that's happening um i'm glad that people like you are out there um sharing their experience and, and, and getting this message out there. So you're welcome back uh, to any time you got something new that you want to talk about or, you know, whatever. So please be in touch whenever you want you, Thank you. if, and when you want to do that. Thank you. I, I would be happy to. This is great. It's, it's great to meet you. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah.
there we have it again big big thanks to david for being on the show please do check out uh his website davidposes.com where you can get all of the details on how to follow him on social media uh pre-order the weight of air definitely worth it definitely a great book uh, and great message you know what you know the drill people give us a follow rate subscribe anywhere you're getting your podcasts we would really appreciate it uh we are available to be reached out to on twitter and instagram at two brad for you send us an email we'll read everything we'll put it on the show two brad for you at gmail.com and send us a voicemail two brad uh speakpipe.com slash two brad for you that's it that's all thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time stay safe everyone bye for now